Take your Bibles and find Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30. I'm going to begin our study of God's word by sharing with you the worst advice I've ever been given. You could put this advice in the category of soul-threatening. It was evil. It was deceptive. And it came from the inside of a wrapper for a little piece of dark chocolate. (laughs) The advice was this. Always follow your heart. It's never wrong. This advice certainly reflects the spirit of our age. It exemplifies supreme trust in self, trusting the so-called infallibility of the human heart. When men and women, fallen men and women do that, they, they place their confidence in their own intuition. And that advice is directly contrary, directly opposed to God's authoritative assessment of the human heart apart from Christ. Many of you know Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? What if that was on the inside of one of those stuffed chocolates? <laughs> the attention grabbing. This indictment, this, this declaration of the deceit of the heart is the condition of every person, every man and woman, apart from God's merciful and gracious intervention. Apart from Christ, mankind lacks the moral ability to fight sin. Lacks the moral ability that, to fight the sin that dominates their existence, and they lack the willingness to seek wisdom from God. Now, Christians, believers, those who have been saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who were miraculously and have been miraculously given spiritual life by the Spirit of God through regeneration, now have the ability to forsake sin and pursue righteousness. Christians, again, Christians, those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are here this morning and you do not know Christ, you're not a Christian. You're not saved. You don't have this new Godward orientation that I'm talking about. But by grace, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ comes salvation. And in Christ, there is power and possibility for accurate self-awareness. That is the ability to understand that we're sinful, the ability to see what God expects from us, the ability to to walk after him in obedience. Of course, God-enabled ability. But with that ability does not come perfection, as every Christian in this room could give testimony of. Newfound spiritual sight does not give us immediate perfection. The weakness of our flesh remains. Fleshly tendencies and fleshly sinful vulnerabilities are a part of our day-in, day-out life of faith. And it's not really fun for any of us to admit that we struggle and that also we all have a tendency to overestimate ourselves and our spiritual abilities. 
right? We trust our own intuition rather than God's word when we assess our spiritual maturity. We may toy with conscience-searing sin rather than holding fast to what is good. As a result, we may be proven unfaithful in the patterns of life. We desperately need God's help to do what he's called us to do, to cease from doing evil and to learn what it is to do good. And he's given us divine resources toward that end. His word, right, our Bible. His spirit who wields and applies the word in our hearts. His people, right, who his spirit uses to bring counsel and edification within the body of Christ. As Adam just mentioned, he's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, every divine resource that we need. He's given us prayer, and that may be perhaps an underestimated divine resource. Prayer, the amazing opportunity to communicate with God, to seek his aid. Now, it's been said from this pulpit that if you want to bring about conviction, preach about prayer or evangelism because you can never do either enough. I am going to preach about prayer this morning, but not to the end simply to say we don't do it enough. That may be an implication. But our focus this morning is going to be on the necessity and the content of prayer. Prayer is necessary because we can't simply trust our hearts because they're infallible. We need his help. And prayer should include spiritual concerns. We need his help to live as he desires us to live. This morning, I want to introduce you to a man who was humble and self-aware and who sought the Lord earnestly for spiritual help. His name is Agur. And we meet him in the 30th chapter of the book of Proverbs. Nothing is really known to us about Agur outside of what he wrote. But from his writing in the verses of chapter 30, we know that he was a man who feared God. He was a man who revered God's word. He was devout and full of wisdom. The focus of our time this morning will be Agur's prayer in verses 7 through 9, but first we're going to read verses 1 through 6 to give us a sense of the man who prayed in the way that we're going to look at, in a way that we want to imitate. So follow along as I read Proverbs 30, verses 1 through 6. The words of Agur, the son of Jacob, the oracle. The man declares to Ethiel, to Ethiel and Eucal, Surely I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. Agur's 
autobiography in this section is attention getting, right? Many of us don't start an introduction to anyone or a declaration of our beliefs by acknowledging our own stupidity, our own lack of understanding. But these verses actually demonstrate that Agur fears the Lord, that he actually possessed understanding. His admission of lacking understanding is a demonstration that he has spiritual understanding and wisdom. He's wise enough to know he isn't wise enough. He's wise enough to know that man has no innate ability to discover wisdom, but that it must come from God himself, the one whose words are tested and proved secure. He's wise enough to know that he desperately needs the Lord's help to live a life of God-honoring devotion. And that's the attitude that he comes to the prayer in verses 7 through 9 with. He brings humility and self-awareness before the Lord. There is an uncommon richness and depth in the prayer that we're going to read. I say that because on the surface it may seem like fairly common requests, but careful consideration reveals that deep devotion and spiritual insight are behind what he actually asks for. This view of self that we just got a little bit of a taste of, it motivates his prayer, and it's a prayer of, of humble self-awareness. The immediate concerns of his prayer are personal obedience, but the ultimate concern of his prayers we'll see is God's glory. And that concern orients all of his requests. Concern for God's glory ultimately orients his request for personal spiritual help. I'm gonna read verses seven through nine, and then we'll look at this prayer together. Agur says, two things I asked of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Just a couple observations here. The structure of his prayer, it's, it's, he says right away, I'm asking for two things, right? It's two requests, two petitions. Those two petitions are this. One, keep deception and lies far from me. And the second request is give me neither poverty nor riches, feed me with the food that is my portion. Right, that's all one request. And then he gives reasons for that second request. He makes a request in verse nine. So he asks for a couple things, then he gives reasons and expands further, explains why he's asking for those things. And we're gonna organize our study of this prayer around three exhortations. Three exhortations from the exemplary prayer of a humble and self-aware man. We wanna treat this prayer as exemplary, look at it and see how we can be encouraged, how we can be exhorted from his model prayer. He is a man worthy of imitation and his prayer is worthy of imitation. The first exhortation comes to us from verse seven. That is pray for yourself with earnestness. Pray for yourself with earnestness. Two things I asked of you, do not refuse me before I die. 
The prayer begins with a poetic numerical saying outlining the two petitions that he's going to make, but it's a personal prayer. It's not a corporate request. It's a personal, intimate petition from Agur to his Lord for spiritual help. The earnestness comes in, in the sense of this, do not refuse me before I die. There is urgent conviction behind what Agur is going to ask for. This understanding or sense of urgency comes to us, it's, it's sort of brought to the surface by the mention of, of, of death, right? The end of his life. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that he was on his deathbed. I, I don't think these are his final words. I, I think that it's bringing to mind that he's considering life with the Lord by faith and saying, I need these things, give these things to me. I want them to be a part of my life before I end, before I'm done. He recognized that the days of life are short. I think he knew the wisdom that we see throughout Proverbs, that life is a vapor in Ecclesiastes, and he was attuned in light of that to his need for divine enablement, and that pushed him to earnest prayer for the Lord. He wants the Lord to answer these prayers for himself, and he's urgent about it. Now, we're gonna cheat ahead just a moment and look down at verses eight and nine because of the content of what he prays for, I think, makes this earnestness that much more stark. So what is he praying for? What is it that he's saying, Lord, don't refuse me these things before I die? From our reading, verse eight, see, it's matters of the heart. The things that he wants urgently are matters of devotion. He's concerned with his spiritual life. And he has urgent conviction over what the Lord wants from him in this life. And so he's going to the Lord with this conviction that I need these things. Think about what the things are that you and I take before the Lord with earnestness, with urgent conviction. What would be those things that marked your life? You said, I must have this before I die. Just imagine your prayer requests. These are the things that I... I really need most. Please grant me these things before the end of my life. For Agur, those things are help for his soul, spiritual help. That's what he brings to the Lord with this earnestness, with this urgent conviction. He, <laughs> he's not procrastinating about life's most important matters, spiritual things. He's not taking his time, taking a slow and easy approach to spiritual needs. He's urgent. There's an earnestness. He recognizes that these spiritual matters are essential, and so that's what he's concerned with. The lesson is just wise people. Wise people are aware that their own intuition is insufficient for a life that pleases God. And they go to the Lord with this earnestness and say, we need help. And specifically, as Agur will demonstrate for us, Throughout the rest of the verse, it's personal earnestness over spiritual needs. That's important. It's not simply that he's in earnest, but it's earnestness over spiritual matters. And the second exhortation comes to us in the second line of verse 8. Well, the first line, actually, of verse 8. He says this, keep deception and lies far from me. 
His first request, keep deception and lies far from me. And from here we get our second exhortation, which is this. We pray for earnestness, pray that your life will be characterized by truth. Pray for your life to be characterized by truth. This first concern of Agur is deception. Deception in general, but also deception in, in the form of speech. Literally saying, keep falsehood and, and a word of lying far away from me. The idea is, is thinking falsely, speaking falsely, speaking that which is false, anything that, that is opposed to the truth of God. He says, I don't want anything to do with that. Lord, keep that away from me. And it's not simply keep it away from me externally, right? We're going to see this is, this is a request that these things would not characterize him. So yes, of course, he doesn't want to be lied about, but more than that, he doesn't want to be characterized by deception and falsehood. When we think of this falsehood and lying request, we have to move beyond this, this notion of simply stretching the truth, like that he's praying, Lord, help me not to tell a lie. Certainly, that would be, be implied, right? It would be included, right? Foolish lying, exaggerating, things like that is included in his request, but it's much deeper than that. And we think, why would this be such an earnest matter for him? And well, truth is central to who God is. That what, which, is, which is contrary to truth, contrary to God, Right, it's contrary to his character. And we see throughout the Old Testament in particular, and of course into the New, but in the Old, that deceitfulness is characteristic of those who don't fear God. It's used in interesting places like Psalm 144, 8 and 11 to characterize those who are enemies of the Lord. Deception and false speech. Throughout Proverbs, a deceitful mouth and devious speech are considered to be the habit of fools. The wise are shown to put falsehood far from them, so certainly augurs a demonstration of that. In the context, in the history of God's people, Israel, that I believe Agur would have known from God's word, falsehood and lying are associated with, with their apostasy. When they turn from the Lord, they're characterized as those who, who meddle in deception, as those who, who lie. Hosea prophesied, in Hosea 10.4, that in disobedience, Israel swore falsely, right, with deceptive covenants. That characterized them. That's what marked their life apart from the Lord. And using the same terminology that we see in Augur's prayer, Ezekiel speaks of false prophets who actually traffic in deception, and they speak lying divinations. It's the same. It's falsehood and this word of lying that Augur says, please keep that away from me. The picture is, is that deception as, as heinous sin, and it's a characteristic of one who is ultimately opposed to God. And the fact that this man, Agur, who has understanding, as we see, but who has humble self-awareness, he's praying for this. This demonstrates that he's aware of, of the sinful heart's propensity to move that way, to traffic in deception, to traffic in dishonesty. Now, on the contrary to that, why, from the positive side, why would he be asking these things to be kept away? Well, Scripture shows that truth is characteristic of the faithful. Going to these various verses to demonstrate and show the fabric in Scripture of how this terminology is used, deception and falsehood conveys more than simply help me not to tell a lie, right? It's characteristic. And contrary to this characteristic of deception 
and speaking falsehood. God's word portrays our, our faithfulness, people who tell the truth, whose lives are marked by truth. Just a few examples, Psalm 15, one. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? It's an important question. Here's the answer. He who walks with integrity, so not deception, he who works righteousness, and he who speaks truth in his heart. Truth as characteristic of those who are devoted to the Lord. That's what marks faithfulness, God says in Psalm 15. Psalm 24, 3, very similar. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? Verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, described by, as one who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, who has not sworn deceitfully. These are questions that divide humanity. Who are the people that may be worshipers of the Lord? The faithful versus the unfaithful. And the, the picture is those who love truth and who are not conducting themselves with falsehood, but those who speak truth in their heart. One more, Zephaniah 3, 12 through 13, shows a beautiful picture of God's purified people. This redeemed remnant. And listen to how he describes them. All right, this is a people of the Lord, a remnant whom he has saved, who he's purified through judgment. This is, what it's, this is how he describes them. These people will be a humble and lowly people who take refuge in the name of the Lord. And they're characterized as those who will do no wrong, will tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths. It's interesting that the emphasis on, the, the, on their faithfulness, on how that would be demonstrated, the Lord himself says, this people, this, this purified people that I've brought to salvation, what characterizes them? Deceitful tongue won't be in their mouths. They'll be characterized by truth. With this exhortation that we would pray for our lives to be characterized by truth, we're asking that the Lord would give us that mark of faithfulness, that this is what would, we would be characterized by as a result of his work in our hearts. And we need his help, just like Agur. We want to recognize that our heart's propensity, why we are still battling fleshly tendencies, is to move toward deception, to move toward false speech. But like Agur, we humbly ask the Lord to keep it far from us, to help us to be a people characterized by the truth. And this deep commitment to truth evidences faithfulness to God. That's why it's striking in this prayer. He's essentially this first request, Lord, I want to be characterized by faithfulness to you. Help me do that. Help me do that by keeping these things away from me. Now the next request comes in the middle of verse 8. And then more time in, in his prayer is devoted to this, his, his second of two things. And I know that's confusing. He's saying two things and three exhortations. Two things, two requests, right? From verses 7 down into 8. Keep deception and lies far from me, request number one. Request number two, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. From this and then following in verse 9 is where we will get our third exhortation. That is, pray for your physical circumstances 
with focus on your spiritual health. Pray for your physical circumstances with focus on your spiritual health. So initially, the request seems pretty simple. Lord, I don't want to be poor. I don't want to be rich. Give me exactly what I need to be in the middle. So he states his request first negatively, then positively, and then he'll move on in verse 9 to explain it. Why is he asking for this? So negatively, he asks that the Lord wouldn't give him, wouldn't give him poverty and would not give him riches. So it's this negative side. He doesn't want to be destitute, so he's not asking to be hungry. He doesn't want to be hungry or thirsty in need of shelter or clothing. But he also, surprisingly, doesn't want to be wealthy. He doesn't want to have riches. Right? He doesn't want to be in a condition of having a full stomach, no material want, a quenched thirst, and comfort. It's implied in riches. So he doesn't want either one of those things. But then positively, this request, he says, feed me with the food that is my portion. That is, he just simply says, Lord, give me the appropriate amount, not too much and not too little. And so his prayer, he envisions these, this spectrum, and he wants to be kept from the extremes. So we see the, the positive and the negative taken together, and simply, he's praying for a modest existence, right? a balanced existence. And we know first, look, he, he's putting himself directly in the hands of God, asking the Lord to provide the very sustenance he needs. We can't can't skip over that. He says, look, you know what's best for me. You know what circumstances are best for me. You know exactly what I need. You've decreed what I should have, so give me that. That's when he says, give me what's my portion. That is what the Lord has allotted. That's, that's the idea. It's like Matthew 6, 11, right? Give us this day our daily bread. That's what he's asking for. Lord, give me what you have allotted to me, what is appropriate according to your providence. So first, he, he's acknowledging the Lord's control over the circumstances of his life in humility, but it's not just that. There's a more self-aware concern and an even higher motivation. Self-aware concern on that side of things, Agur recognizes, as we'll see, the heart's propensity to defect, to turn from the Lord in times of plenty, to abandon the faith and turn down a path that's dishonorable. And he's concerned over that. He's concerned over the temptations that could come in these various circumstances and what that would mean for his relationship with the Lord. So, and this is key, he prays for physical circumstances with his mind aimed toward and set on their impact on his spiritual life. His request is actually not for his mouth, for his stomach, for his house. It's for his soul. The balance is aimed ultimately for the good of his soul. So this is a prayer of spiritual insight. He's aware of what could be harmful to him, harmful to his spiritual life when he goes to the Lord asking for his needs to be met. There's also a higher motivation. He's aimed at the glory of God, whether through his own devotion or the testimony of his life, as we'll see, Agur is so motivated to glorify the Lord that he wants his physical circumstances to be arranged perfectly so that the Lord is glorified through his life. Now, this awareness and, and motivation are articulated in verse 9. And so in the first half of verse 9, he explains this temptation that concerns him about prosperity. So here's his concern about prosperity. 
So verse 9, he wants to be fed with the food that is his portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? So the reason that he asks to be given balance, to be given the right exact portion is because he knows that circumstances of wealth could lead to forgetting the Lord. It's the first reason he prays this way. He knows that the circumstances of wealth could lead to forgetting the Lord. Riches are accompanied by a satisfied stomach. That's the idea, that you'd not be full, right? The elimination of want or need. And in the ancient Near East, this being satisfied was not kind of the right that it is today. They weren't accustomed to just eating until full all the time. It wasn't a daily expectation. It was a desire. It was an aim. It was evidence of prosperity. To be full was considered to be a blessing. But as shown by the nation of Israel in their history, and I have no doubt that Agur knew, knew that history when he prays this way, being full could lead to apostasy. That's ultimately his concern. He's concerned about abandoning or forgetting the Lord. Moses warned the people of Israel repeatedly about this very thing multiple times. And Deuteronomy 8 speaks to that, and I want to read it because I think that that is what undergirds Agur's prayer. Moses said, beware, Deuteronomy 8, verse 11, that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord. The Lord is your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. In the wilderness, he fed you manna which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Remember all those things, he says. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. There it is. That's Augur's concern. He doesn't want to be rich because he recognizes his heart's proclivity for this. Comfort and wealth can be an incubator for spiritual amnesia. That's the idea. I don't want to be comfortable. I don't want to be wealthy because I know my frame and I'm weak and I'm gonna be tempted to forget you, to see God's provision as his own accomplishment and in his heart say, who is the Lord? Hosea 13 indicts Israel for this. God says, it was I who knew you in the wilderness in the land of drought, but when they had grazed, they became full, they were filled, and what happened? Their heart was lifted up, there's pride, therefore, they forgot me. There's abandonment. And his commentary on Hosea, Jeremiah Burroughs says, pride is the disease of prosperity. That's what Agur has in mind. The danger for Israel was that they would become proud and forget God, the very one who provided what they, need, they would need. And Agur doesn't want that. He's humble. He's self-aware. He's more concerned with continued faithfulness and devotion to the Lord than he is with the comfort that would come from wealth. That, it, 
That is a multi-layered, profound prayer of a wise man. Circumstances aimed at spiritual needs. Pride is a danger for those of us who have all that we want. Paul tells Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 17, to instruct the rich not to be conceited. Same thing, not to be lifted up, not to be proud. That's the concern here. It's, it's so interesting reading through this that Augur doesn't ask what I would ask. Lord, please give me all that I want and help me to know how best to glorify you with what you give me, right? And that's typically how we pray. Lord, I want this. This is my desire, but I'm spiritual, so please help me and guide me. Use these things that I want to your end. Instead, Augur says, Lord, I am more concerned with being devoted to you than I am my own comfort. I know my heart. Don't give me anything that would tempt me to turn away from you. Incredible. So aware of his heart that he realizes the circumstances of prosperity could result in defection. Following his example means that we ask for our circumstances to be aligned in such a way that our spiritual concerns are in mind. Lord, bring about in our lives whatever it is that will most keep me with you, keep me devoted to you, keep me from forgetting you, keep me walking after you, seeking you. That's what Augur's praying for. On the second half of verse nine, those were the, the concerns he had with riches. Why, why does he say, don't make me poor? Right? Often we think that the answer then, if wealth brings trouble, then, then I want nothing. And he doesn't ask for that. Second half of verse 9, he says, or, so I don't want to, I'll forget you if I'm rich. Second reason in there in verse 9, or that I not be in want and steal. So in want, poverty, and steal, and profane the name of my God. Another reason then that he gives for praying like this is that circumstances of poverty could lead to dishonoring the Lord. He's concerned about turning, deserting, He's also concerned about dishonoring the Lord. Poverty has its own snares for the deceptive heart. Wealth may lead to arrogantly forgetting God, but want may lead to arrogantly looking for it, the wealth that is ourself, seeking to make our own provision, and that's what's in view here. The picture of being in want, in Augur's words, is one who's lacking the necessity of, necessities of life, and, and rather than ask the Lord to provide it, you go to get it yourself. I don't wanna steal. He don't want to seek his own avenue of provision. Why? Because to do that, to steal, to go after what hasn't been allotted to him would be to profane the name of his Lord. That is, he says, if I'm in poverty, I'm going to be tempted to do something that would ultimately bring a reproach upon the name of the God that I worship. The term profane here. In verse 9, denotes violence. The idea is, is that by being in want and stealing, he's afraid. Well, by being in want, he's afraid he would steal, and that if he did that, he would do violence to the name of God. Listen briefly to the other circumstances in Scripture where God says that his name would be profaned. Compare those to Augur's request to have the right portion. If the Israelites offered child sacrifices to Molech. God says, that profanes my name. Leviticus 18, 21. If they swear falsely, 
That profanes his name, Leviticus 19.12. If they worship idols, Ezekiel 20.39, that profanes his name. Then Ezekiel 36, we have this unbelievable portion where God's concern for his holy name is such that he will act to preserve it when it's profaned by Israel among the nations. He says of Israel in Ezekiel 36.20, when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. In that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. So by being exiled, they profaned the name of their Lord. Verse 21, God says this, I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Agar's not asking, this isn't a thin request. He's not simply saying, I don't wanna be poor because I don't wanna have to steal. He's concerned about doing violence to the reputation of the Lord, profaning the name, of God, his God, the one he's devoted to, that he would act in such a way, being tempted out of the sinfulness of his heart, that would bring a reproach against the name of God, the same name that God is deeply concerned with vindicating himself when human beings fail. God's name is a representation of who he is, his essence, his character. Augur's concerned that in poverty, he would act in such a way as to bring reproach on the name of God. That's behind us, again. He wants the circumstances to be arranged in such a way that he won't act this way spiritually. He says, give me, I don't want wealth, I don't want poverty, but not simply because of those things and what those may mean for me, but what they may lead me to do, spiritually speaking, that I may fail in devotion to the Lord, that I may profane God by how I act in response to these circumstances. His prayer is a humble admission of his own inability, right? He's asking the Lord to arrange this. And because we see that he's asking for for ultimately spiritual concerns behind the physical circumstances, we realize he's saying, Lord, I need your help to keep me devoted, to keep me in a position of bringing glory to your name in the circumstances in which I find myself. It's a humble prayer where he wants the Lord to arrange circumstances in such a way to be rightly suited to his spiritual needs. There is a depth to his prayers before the Lord. Yes, I want this to happen in life. Yes, I want this arranged like this. And then he says, why? And it's because he fears God. He wants to be faithful more than he wants to be full. He wants to glorify God in every circumstance of life. And that's behind his prayer. You think about the totality of Augur's prayer, just stepping back and looking at it, it demonstrates a profound distrust of his own heart, right? Once again, he doesn't pray like I would be tempted to. No, 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 give me this, give me what I want, and then then help me figure it out. He says, I I don't trust myself with riches, Lord. I don't trust myself in poverty. I, I don't want those circumstances because he knows his vulnerabilities. He knows his propensities towards sin. He knows 
that he needs divine aid. So he goes to the Lord with requests. Spiritually attuned to his needs, right? He has spiritual insight, spiritual understanding, and that's what he takes to the Lord. What do we do with this lofty example? Pray, right? Of course, pray, right? The Lord has not saved us and then left us to fight on our own, right? We acknowledge that. That's, that's an easy takeaway from this text. Man, we need to pray. Agur was, was wise, and this is how he prayed. We need to pray. We need to tap the resource of infinite power. We need to go to the Lord. I think he says more about the content of our prayers. The content of our prayers. This passage has revealed really a, a leanness in my praying. Do I ask the Lord for things thinking about the implications for my spiritual life? Do I ask the Lord for, for things that are circumstantial with any understanding and insight to what they'll mean for me in my relationship with him? Not simply just the request in and of itself that's, that's circumstantial. Imagine the following scenario in care group or after a worship service. Someone approaches you, asks, how can they pray for you? Perhaps you say, would you pray that I get this promotion for work? Or you simply say, please pray that I'll get all my work done this week. I'm slammed. Perhaps you're a mom who says, would you pray that I keep up with, with my seemingly limitless tasks this week? I'm at school, discipleship, serving my family. Please pray for my busyness. Perhaps you, you share a prayer uh, for an unmet desire, a, a spouse, a child, a new house, something. Now, what if after sharing that request, this brother or sister who you just shared it with said, why? How would you respond? Why? Why do you want me to pray for that? You may be tempted to say, I'm never sharing a prayer request with you ever again, <laughs> right? But it's a legitimate question. Why? Why do you want the promotion? Why prayer for aid in busyness? Why? a spouse, a child, a new house. Why do you want to get your work done? It's a legitimate question that helps us press in to think about the, the end of our praying with God's glory in mind and our walk with him in mind. Look, I, please don't hear me as making a suggestion, this legalistic, rigid, and Mission Road Bible Church, someone says, hey, I'm really ill, can you pray for me? And you say, why? Why do you want to be healthy? Why do you want to be, why do you... That's, that is not the, not the point, right? We should pray for one another's needs. We should be open ears for one another in fellowship in the body of Christ. We share requests regularly. But we should also spur one another on in actually thinking about the content of our praying. And we can help one another, spur one another on, not with some sort of ungracious examination but spur one another to follow Augur's example. Just say, we, we can read this. We can encourage one another to pray earnestly for spiritual needs, right? 
And that doesn't ignore physical needs and physical circumstances. We're whole people. Our physical circumstances, as Agar demonstrates, affect our spiritual condition. But we can help one another think about how those two things relate. How we arrange or could ask the Lord to arrange circumstances that, that would aid our devotion. We can help each other pray for things that would result in God being honored and glorified if those prayers were answered in our lives. So let's encourage one another to pray like Agar. Right? 